Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. On the 13th of July 2012, Sandrine Jordan's phone rings. The 37-year-old is visiting a friend in the town of Caboolture, Queensland, when she answers the call. 250 people go missing every year, a voice tells Sandrine. What makes you any different? Sandrine's mother is nearby. She doesn't hear the conversation herself, but Sandrine is visibly shaken. In the days leading up to this call, the mother of three has shared that she's scared for her life. Those around her observe it's as though she's running from something or someone. Later that same day, Sandrine heads to the home of another friend, John Bogheim. Police will eventually hear him described as a violent man, a heavy drinker. His rural property at the end of Tomlinson Road is set on five secluded acres shrouded by dense vegetation and swampland. The house is set back some 500 metres from the road and it's the last known place Sandrine Jordan would be seen alive. We just want her home. We want her home or we want some answers as to what has happened or if she hasn't gone off on her own for well, we want answers. We want to know why. We want to know where she is. I'm Emma Gillespie and this is True Crime Conversations, a Mamma Mia podcast exploring the world's most notorious crimes by speaking to the people who know the most about them. Sandrine Jordan vanished from a Queensland property in July 2012. A coroner would eventually rule her death a probable suicide, but her body has never been found. And while most in her life have concluded Sandrine is probably dead, many suspect she may have met with foul play. Among them is retired detective turned private investigator, Graham Crowley. Graham has been investigating the case of Sandrine Jordan's disappearance for the Bring Home Sandrine podcast, and he joins us today. And just before we get into it, please be aware this episode references suicide, drug and child sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. How did this case come to your attention? What motivated you to dive into Sandrine's story? I live literally 30 kilometres from where Sandrine disappeared. And I did know a little bit about it, but I'd forgotten about it. I saw a 10-year anniversary media article on it. And what grabbed my attention was she was reported deceased in 2016 And the cause of death was ruled as suicide by the coroner, but her body and remains have never been found. And it was just like a red flag to me. Well, how do you rule suicide when there's no body? So I contacted the family and told them I was keen to do a podcast. And they said yes. 
Were the family receptive to your request given the sort of media coverage or lack of coverage? Were you sort of hesitant contacting them not knowing how they would react? Oh, they are super keen. They're grateful for any media coverage. They've been begging for media coverage for 10 years and had very little. I'd love if you could tell me a bit about Sandrine Jordan. What do we know about her life? Sandrine was 37 years of age at the time of her disappearance. She had three children aged 12, 14 and 17. Sandrine is an Australian citizen, but she was actually born in France and she lived there for eight or 10 years, spoke French fluently, came back to Australia with the family, did her high school here in Caboolture in Queensland. Sandrine struggled with some mental health issues, predominantly post-traumatic stress. She was on medication. She had attempted suicide at least twice before. The family were adamant that at the time of her disappearance, she was not suicidal. Depends who you ask. Some people who may have their own agenda say she was suicidal. So it just depends who you ask. But certainly the police investigation was focused on the fact that she had mental health issues and was suicidal. So we know that she struggled with mental health throughout her life. Is that possibly tied back to her childhood? What do we know about her childhood in terms of possible abuse? It seems she was sexually abused as a child by her father for a long period of time. There were six siblings, but she was dad's favourite, and that caused the PTSD. The day that Sandrine went missing... Can you take me through the hours leading up to her disappearance? Where she went missing from was a rural property just outside Caboolture. It was at the end of a dead-end rural road. It was quite bushy, not many houses around. She'd been driving around doing some things with her mother and her mother dropped her off at a friend's place at about 10am. She was there for a short time. The friend then dropped her over to John's place, who lived on Tomlinson Road on this acreage property. Her children, by the way, shared their time. She had separated from her partner, long-term partner. They were together 16 years. He moved to Western Australia into the Pilbara area, Karatha, and the children shared their time between him and Sandrine. And at that point in time, the children were with the father. They had been living with her for about the previous six years, but They would go, spend holidays there, spend time with him, spend time with her. So on that day, she got dropped to John's place. She spent at least six hours there. She'd been friends with John and she'd actually worked with John for a while. He had a nursery business and she was into horticulture, so she worked for him for a while. She said they were friends. He called her his soulmate and that they were going to move in together. That's a claim the family reject. So she was there that day. At 5.29pm, he and his son and his son's friend had loaded up some motorcycles into the back of his van to go to motocross. And John told the police she went down to the front gate at 5.29. He drove down at 5.30 and she wasn't there. And she hasn't been seen since. 
Was there anyone else around who witnessed her, who's reported seeing her, anyone else around that time who we know had eyes on Sandrine? There was a woman living on the property. It was about five acres, that property. There was a woman living there in a caravan. She was also interviewed by police. She corroborated that Sandrine was there. Her version of events varied from John's. At one stage, she thought she saw Sandrine in the front of his van and that she left with John. John says she didn't leave with him and he just drove down the front and she wasn't there. There is a church across the road. There were people coming and going from a function at the church and no one saw her standing at the gate. I want to get a sense of where was Sandrine at in her life at that point? I don't believe she was actually in a good spot. She had been in a relationship for about 18 months with a man called Ian. And that relationship ended about, and again, it depends who you talk to, that relationship ended about two weeks before she went missing. In that two weeks, she'd been living at friends' places. At the time of her disappearance, she'd been staying with her mother for four nights. Family members had offered her accommodation. Friends had offered her accommodation. Sandrine was saying that she had upset the wrong people. She was saying that she had sent an email to the wrong person in the days leading up to her disappearance. She was saying she was in fear of her life. She said she refused offers of accommodation from family because she said she would be putting them at risk. So she was, perhaps you could say she was even paranoid. Do we have any clarity on what she may have meant, you know, to weigh up paranoia against an actual disappearance, you know, in the days after? Everyone I've spoken to so far has said she refused to tell them what the email was, who she sent it to, and what it was about. There are suggestions that friends of hers were involved in drug use, perhaps even making drugs, and that she had come across this and she had told the wrong person. That email that's been spoken about, were police able to trace that to investigate? Sandrine's laptop was recovered. Police took possession of the laptop and they reported that nothing could be found of it. I'm actually in the process of getting the laptop forensically tested to see if we can find any details on that laptop. So we know she was at John's house. She's gone to the front of the property allegedly and within, you know, the space of a minute vanishes. Yes. What happens next? When are the police notified? When does this become a missing persons case? It takes quite a while. John goes off to motocross with his son and his son's mate. Motocross is cancelled. They come back. Again, there's some variations here, but he goes looking for Sandrine, driving around the streets and cannot find her. At around 10 o'clock that night, and again at 11 p.m., John rings Sandrine's brother and says, Sandrine's missing. You've got to do something. And the brother says, look, you know, Sandrine comes and goes. We know that. 
she visits friends, she stays at friends' places, we'll talk tomorrow. On the Saturday, he speaks with John and John says, no, I haven't seen her. She's got some stuff here. You need to come and collect it. And I haven't spoken to John as yet. But at that point, it appears that he had decided that she wasn't coming back. On the Tuesday, the Jordan family report her missing. So that was the 18th of July. Four days after that, police notified the public of her disappearance. And four days after that is the first media coverage I can find on the story. So two clear weeks between when she went missing and when people would have started first hearing about it. How significant is that timeline in terms of a missing persons case? Crucial, critical, and it's a cold trail. And any hope of finding any evidence at that point makes it really, really difficult. And I make comparisons in the podcast to some other disappearances of women that make it front page news on the day they go missing and it stays on the front page for days and days and weeks and weeks and the story barely made a ripple. Why? Why do you think? You know, I know that this is the same year that Alison Baden-Clay went missing. Why didn't Sandrine's case tick the boxes? Good question. I've wondered that myself. I know with Alison Baden-Clay, she came from an upmarket suburb. Husband was a high-profile businessman. I think in his case, the media smelled blood. In Sandrine's case, it was short of two weeks before the media even got to hear about it. And by then, it was sort of yesterday's news. And there is a perception she had mental health issues, she was suicidal. Yes, she's just gone off and killed herself. Do you think that might have informed the police investigation more than it should have, the history of mental health issues? The family are adamant. The police focused on her mental health and her suicidal previous tendencies and that influenced them to the point where they put aside any other suggestion of perhaps foul play or other reasons why she might have been missing. If you are hearing about this case for the very first time, you know, perhaps some of our listeners, probably most of our listeners, haven't heard about Sandrine's disappearance and you hear about a history of mental health issues, attempted suicide, abusive childhood, why shouldn't we be suspicious of writing this off as a suicide? Why should we think that there's foul play involved in this disappearance? That is a valid question, Emma, and I'm not sure I have an answer to it. My first comment is this. If she committed suicide, where is her body? Her previous attempts at suicide were by drug overdose. So you could suggest that any future attempts at suicide would also be by drug overdose. If you kill yourself by drugs, your body is going to be right where you killed yourself. Here we are 10 years later and there's no evidence of her remains. But it gets interesting because three years after Sandrine goes missing in 2015, 
some belongings are found behind one of the other acreage properties, three doors down, just three doors. And at the back of their five-acre property, a private investigator working for the Sandrine's family found some possessions down there. The property was apparently searched in the original search by police and SES and nothing was found. But between 2012 and 2015, there were floods and some carpet had been washed down from the direction of John's place. And there have been claims that John replaced the carpet in his house. I should add here that after Sandrine went missing, John kept calling three members of Sandrine's family at unusual hours, texting them, and they claimed that when he did ring, it was 2 o'clock in the morning, he was drunk, and he was saying, you've got to search the back of the property, you've got to search the back of the property. The police didn't search the back of the property. You've got to search the back of the property for Sandrine. So eventually, the PI said, well, I'll go and search the back of the property. And wrapped in a piece of carpet and in black plastic was a pair of black pants, a purple top, a bra, sunglasses, a belt, and a hessian bag and some other items like 20 beer cans and a screwdriver, stuff like that. At the time of her disappearance, Sandrine was wearing black pants, purple top, had a hessian bag, she had sunglasses. Now, these have been in the weather for three years, so well deteriorated. But here we have a situation where you have a woman going missing at a property and three doors down three years later, you're finding very, very similar items to the clothing she was wearing at the back of that property. The police decided that property was not connected to Sandrine. I'm yet to see the police report, so I don't know how they came to that conclusion. But what the family told me is that at no point did the police show them the property that was found behind the house. So they say it's similar to Sandrine's, but they weren't able to get a close look at it to confirm whether it was or wasn't hers. The police concluded it wasn't connected to Sandrine. End of story. Is there any DNA testing that we know of? Police advised that there was no DNA found on the items, and I can accept that after three years being out in the open. Also, I don't know if you're aware, the QHFSS up here, which is the Queensland Health Forensic Science Services section, at that time was a train wreck and was the subject of a recent commission of inquiry. So was there no DNA or was it another one that fell through the cracks of the FSS? Perhaps we'll never know. Because at the coroner's inquest or coroner's investigation, after concluding that Sandrine committed suicide, she ordered all evidence and exhibits to be disposed of. So I suspect we'll never know if those items were associated with Sandrine. There's so much to unpack here and, and so many elements and steps. I want to take it back a little bit. At what point did the police investigation turn into a coronial inquiry? How does a missing persons case sort of go from being a criminal investigation to ending up in the coroner's court? The police officer investigating the case closed his file in January 2015. So two and a half years after Sandrine went missing, 
he wrote a report to the coroner recommending death by suicide. And that took 18 months for the coroner to report on, which was June 2016, just under four years after her disappearance. When I heard that finding, Emma, I was just surprised. I was just gobsmacked that you could have a finding of suicide with no remains. I can understand it, someone falling off a cruise liner at sea. And that has happened many times where someone falls off a cruise boat or even a working boat and their remains are never found and it's concluded they died but here the closest ocean is 30 kilometers away the same as the forest we've got Bilbao forest not far about 30 kilometers north of Kabulcha and bodies are regularly pulled out of Bilbao but again it's 30 kilometers away Sandrine's car had broken down and was being repaired so she had no transport she needed help to get there so she committed suicide where the remains. So with that ruling from the coroner, that then means it's a closed case, correct? Yes. And so then how significant is that? Well, it becomes very significant because other missing persons, which are open cases, at some point the government will announce a reward, possibly 250000 half a million, $1 million, and that might motivate someone to come forward with some information. Also, if it's an open case, it is actually assigned to a police officer. And if someone rings Crime Stoppers, it will filter through to the officer with the file and that is something for him to investigate. For instance, that clothing found behind the neighbour's property, that was found five months after the officer had closed his report and sent it off to the coroner. Now, as I said, I'm yet to see the police report. The FOI put in by the family has been rejected at this point and we're working through that process. But at the coroner's investigation, she did not mention that clothing found behind the property. So I'm suspecting, I'm suggesting that... The coroner was not advised of that fine behind the property. I think that finding of that property had a catastrophic impact on this case. It went from missing person to suicide. It could have gone from missing person to murder, homicide, or definitely should have gone from missing person to an open case. You're listening to True Crime Conversations with me, Emma Gillespie. I'm speaking with Graham Crowley about the disappearance of Sandrine Jordan. Sandrine was a prolific writer. She kept journals. She wrote down lots of her thoughts and fears. What have her journals told us, if anything, about what was going on in her life, her plans for the future, her concerns for her safety. Yes, she was a prolific writer and she was scribbling all the time. And in fact, the police called them her scribblings. And I don't agree with that. A lot of them made sense. Most of them made sense. There were some things a bit offbeat, but most of them made sense. At one point, not long before she died, she said, and I'm just going from memory here, she said, I've lived amongst criminals, thieves, 
and yes, someone I believe to be a serial killer, and then went on to name the person that she believed to be the serial killer, a friend of her ex-partner. Did the police ever see that? Did they investigate it? No idea. Her loved ones have said that there are people in her life who know more than they're letting on, particularly a few men in her life. Who are those men and why might they be suspects? Why might they be worth questioning more than they've been questioned to this point? There were three men in the last days of her life. There was John, the person who owned the property where she was last seen. The second man was Brad. Brad was a long-term friend of Sandrine's. They'd been friends for about eight years or so. He was supposed to take Sandrine to a Buddhist retreat on the day she disappeared. He was angry with her because she had got in between him and his girlfriend and they had then broken up. Sandrine was trying to contact Brad on the Friday to sort out this issue with the ex. He says he didn't speak to her on the Friday, but in another interview said he did speak with her on the Friday. I'm still trying to get to the bottom of all that. The third one is Ian, the ex-partner. The police have interviewed all three persons and eliminated them as persons of interest or suspects in Sandrine's disappearance. So there's these people that are in her life that the family believe have more information than they have let on. But again, I've got to stress, the police said they weren't involved. A few months after Sandrine went missing, a letter turned up at her ex-partner's house. He didn't know who sent it. It was four pages, four and a half pages in length, actually. It was from someone who had an intimate knowledge of the Jordan family. Person, male or female, we don't know, called themselves Rosetta Bunton. And here's some comments from it. Hi, Michael. Hope you and your children have a fab Chrissy and New Year 2013. Sandrine must have been a handful, being Frenchy and free spirit and sex maniac to boot. Guess that's why you are in Western Australia and she is in Queensland with her Caboolture clan. Seems like she had so many gentlemen callers and no home too. No wonder the kid's better off. It's so easy to be a good mum if you don't have them 24-7, right? So there's four pages of this. The writer goes on to say her 17-year-old is in Sydney with Granny. Her mother remarried and is now Mrs J, mentions the full name, Mrs J. So whoever wrote it had an intimate knowledge of the Jordan family, but clearly hated Sandrine. Have the police been notified about this letter? No DNA could be recovered from the letter. There were nine sets of fingerprints. They eliminated six sets. There are three sets of fingerprints outstanding. No one in the family knows a Rosetta Bunton. The letter was posted from Horsham in Victoria with no address. No one knows someone in Horsham, Victoria. In episode six, one of the family name 
a person they think who wrote the letter, and it happens to be one of the three men we just talked about. Graham, this is extraordinarily disturbing and strikes me as something that the police investigation could not ignore. But from what you're telling me, they were aware of it within the weeks after Sandrine's disappearance. Does that mean the coroner would have been made aware of it? Does that mean that it was ignored? It's not in the coroner's report. So I think the coroner was not aware of it. Why are there all these disturbing things that happened in the lead-up to Sandrine's death, you know, emails that have gone missing, paranoia or fear for her life expressed to her family about her safety, this letter received with intimate knowledge of her family sent to her ex-partner, the father of her children. Why do you think that these instances didn't play a bigger role in the line of inquiry for police? And now, Emma, you're getting an idea why I'm doing this podcast. There are so many questions and so few answers, and I'm hoping to get the answers or some of the answers or one of the answers. With these investigations, with everything that you're learning about this case and discovering, what's the connection back to the police? Is this information being shared with them? Has the family attempted to share this with them? Or given that probable suicide ruling by the coroner, does that make it a lot harder to loop in the authorities, I guess? The police file is closed, so essentially they don't want to know about it. The Jordan family are very, very frustrated with the police activities in this case from day one. They are very unhappy with the way the whole thing was handled and I haven't really asked them if they still contact the police. I I suspect they don't. Sandrine was a mum, three kids. They're all grown-ups now. Do they believe that their mother is alive? No one, and I mean no one in the Jordan family accepts the coroner's report that it was suicide and everyone I've spoken to, that's about five of the Jordan family, all believe she is deceased and that she did not kill herself. What makes them think that? What kind of a mum was she? What relationship did she have with her family? She had a very, very good relationship with her children. She was in regular contact with them. The children have told me that. Sandrine's siblings have told me that. And they told me that they held out hope that Sandrine was alive. But about three months after her disappearance, it was the birthday of one of her children and there was no contact. And they concluded at that point that this wasn't just a missing person. Because she was the type of mum who would never miss her kids' birthday. Never, ever miss contacting her children. The day of her disappearance, Sandrine took a phone call. And during that phone call, somebody said to her, 250 people go missing every year. What makes you any different? 
What do we know about that phone call? That is all we know at this point. That is another issue here that I'm still scratching around and trying to find the accuracy of that. I know who said it. It wasn't one of those three men. I'm trying to find the connection there between why it was said, why it was said to her, and why she should go missing that very day that that comment was said. She's not the only woman to go missing from that area near Caboolture in that year in 2012 who's never been found. What can you tell me about Jennifer Kilkenny and are there any parallels between her disappearance and the disappearance of Sandrine? Jennifer Kilkenny went missing on 1 January 2012 from Benyo, which is a northside suburb, in a straight line from Caboolture. That's about 30 kilometres away. She left a friend's house and was driving eight kilometres to her own home and never arrived. Her car was found 12 kilometres away at Deegan in the opposite direction. And again, like I said, that's 30 kilometres away from where Sandrine went missing. But two weeks before Sandrine went missing, she was living only five kilometres from Deegan. She was very, very close to where that car was found. Essentially, her and Jennifer Kilkenny were in the same area in that year when Jennifer Kilkenny went missing. It is believed, I could be wrong, I believe there has been no coroner's inquest yet into Jennifer, but it's claimed she was suicidal. And again, no body has been found. I have tried to speak with the family of Jennifer Kilkenny, but unfortunately I have not been able to. They declined to discuss it. As someone who has worked and made a career in this space for you know the everyday person wrapping their heads around two women going missing from a similar part of the world at a similar time in the same year is that common is that something that we should expect in the world of missing persons i personally see it as a major red flag but it seems from what i've looked into, the Queensland police don't see it that way. Just a few weeks ago, the remains of a woman were found in Brisbane. What can you tell me about that and why did that pique your interests in relation to this case? An unidentified body was found in a wall in a unit block around the 7th of December and it's now almost two months later, and as far as I know, the police are still yet to positively identify the woman. But she is in the same age group, same height, same colour hair as Sandrine. There were prescription glasses found with the body and the family were waiting and waiting and ringing police and contacting, trying to speak to the police to see if it was Sandrine. And eventually they were told that police have a high degree of confidence that it wasn't Sandrine. But I'm surprised that they yet to say who it was. In this day, I would have thought technology was such that they should have been able to identify who that woman was. But it does raise a question of missing women. And this woman has been deceased 
that was found in the wall for somewhere between 8 and 15 years. Surely someone has missed that woman. You have been working closely with Sandrine's family throughout this process. What's that been like? Has that impacted you? It's helped me change, I think, my view on missing people. I'm embarrassed to say that if I read or saw something about someone with mental health issues who had suicidal tendencies went missing, I just drew a conclusion that they'd committed suicide. And I'm actually embarrassed about that. And it has helped me change that view of how I look at cases. And I've become more aware now of missing people. You know, there's a phenomenal number of missing people every year. It's something like 50,000 people. But about 95% of those are found. So it becomes a real issue for the police. Do we put resources onto that or we don't? Which one do you investigate and which one, oh, well, they'll, they'll turn up? How do you address that? As a retired police officer, do you think that, you know, your attitude that you've owned about seeing this case in the paper and possibly writing it off because of mental health, does that give us an indication of where the police force is at in terms of how they understand mental health? I actually think they do a good job, but there is always one that will fall through the cracks, and I think this might be that one. What is the goal of your podcast? What do you really want people to know about this case? What is it that you are trying to achieve? That's why I named it Bring Home Sandrine. I would like to bring her home. That is the goal. How do we do that? We get the story out there. We tell it. It's a case that hasn't had much publicity. We get as many people as possible listening to it, talking about it, telling their family and friends about it, and just someone may have a little piece of information that from that we can bring home Sandrine. Thanks to Graham for assisting us to tell Sandrine's story. If this episode brought up anything for you, Lifeline is always available on 13 11 14. If you'd like to learn more about Graham's investigation, including his latest updates, he is still looking into this case, you'll find a link to his podcast, Bring Home Sandrine, in the show notes. True Crime Conversations is a Mamma Mia podcast hosted by me, Emma Gillespie, with audio design by Rhiannon Mooney. The executive producer is Gia Moylan. And if you have a case you think we should cover next, please get in touch with us. You can send us an email to truecrime at mamamia.com.au.